Please turn again to uh, Micah chapter 4 as we can uh, continue our series uh, through this uh, prophecy. And uh, let me pray before we look at it. Lord, we ask tonight that we will see light in your light as you give it to us in your word. Lord, may it be a lamp to our path, a light for our feet to walk upon. May it inspire, may it encourage, may it uplift us to know the plans that you have for your church. Uh, Speak to us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, last time we uh, looked at Micah's great vision of the last days, uh, the plans uh, that God has for the nations uh, and for his church in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And as I said before, in this, this uh, section of Micah, Micah's book is the second section. Uh, and it begins in chapter 3 uh, with, a, with Micah's brutal condemnation of, of Jerusalem and its leadership. And then he bursts into chapter 4 with this wondrous vision of, of the last times. And in many ways, these themes uh, continue Uh, as we look at the rest of of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, but with a slightly different emphasis. For Micah now moves away from this great and wonderful uh, vision of the last days to something which is a little more sobering for his readers. He still is looking to bring hope, to bring a great deal of hope to a small, battered remnant of faithful people that we met in Uh, verse 5. Yet he also wants them to understand that before this great vision of of verses 1 to 8, before this great vision uh, comes about, there's going to be a time of trial, a time of exile. Before the glory of verses 1 to 8, there's going to be a great deal of pain and sorrow that they're going to have to face up to. And Micah wants this faithful remnant of God's people to be prepared. What better way for them to be prepared than to tell them about the pain that they're about, that is about to come. Exile is coming for the people of God. They're going to be spat out of the land and go into exile in a foreign country. They're going to be carried away as the spoils of war and they're going to serve their captors as slaves. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be sorrow by the bucket load. For exile is coming. Micah wants to show these people, these small remnant, that there is a reason to hope, to hold on to during what they're about to experience. For it's going to be through this exile that God is going to act once more to rescue his people and to bring them back to himself. There's going to be pain, but through the pain, there's going to be something much, much better. And that's often the way, isn't it? Sometimes we have to go through something very painful in order to get to a better place. I think immediately of soldiers who have lost limbs in Afghanistan. The pain of recovery, learning to walk again, learning to use their muscles again. 
The agony that the body has to go through in order to reach a place where they can once again live and function with a degree of normality. And for God's people, it's going to be the very same. There's going to be pain, but through that, there's going to come something which is much more wonderful. It's going to be bad, but the end result will be spectacular. It's going to look like it's all over, but God's plan will never and can never be defeated. So in chapter 4, verse 9 to uh, 5 verse 5, the section we're looking at, it splits itself very neatly in, in, into three sections, each beginning with the word now in the original Hebrew. Firstly, there's verses 9 through 10, which speaks of a, a new exodus. Then we have verses 11 to 13, which deals with God's plan for his people. And finally then, in the first five verses of chapter 5, we have God dealing with, with a new leadership, or bringing a new leadership to his people. So in verse 9, Micah takes a step back from his great vision of the last days, and he comes to something which is entirely more sober, that Judah is now to face up to. We can see that immediately that the time scale that he is using here Uh, has now changed with this use of the word now. In the original Hebrew, uh, the first word in in chapter, in uh, verse 9, is now. And this points us to the fact that Micah is now speaking about a time which is different from what he's talked about in in the first eight verses. And it's very important that we understand what he's trying to say here. For it's not as straightforward as you might think, which we'll, as we'll see. For the now, is this now that he's talking about the present situation, which Micah himself is experiencing? Well, it doesn't seem to be, because the reference to Babylon later on was still at least a hundred years away from Micah's own time. So how do we understand the now of this passage? Well, it seems he's using this now to refer to the future, but not in the same sense as he's already referred to in the first eight verses. This is something which is much closer than anything Micah saw in his vision of one to eight. It's something which is, yes, on the distant horizon, but it's not as far away as what he's already described. So in verse nine, he really begins with some sarcasm. Why do you cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? That pain seizes you like a woman in labor? Micah has a picture here of of Jerusalem in a blind panic. Something has taken place that has been unexpected, like labor pains when they arrive. The city is under siege. The enemy is at the gates. They're boxed in behind the walls, unable to escape and awaiting the horrors of siege warfare with all that will follow, starvation, disease, hunger, brutality, and all the rest. They are in a panic. And sarcastically, Micah asked them, have you no king? Has your counselor perished? Of course there was a king in Jerusalem from the royal line of David. He was still there. 
And yes, of course, the king was the one who was responsible for international relations, for, for foreign policy. Mike is being sarcastic. He's basically asking them, why are you so worried? Can't your king sort it out? Can't he save you? Can't he make an alliance or do something to prevent this? And the answer, of course, is no. There's nothing that can now be done. And you'll notice the contrast, of course, between verses 8 and verse 9. In the future, kingship will come back to Zion. Now they have a king and it's useless. He is useless. They might as well not have. He is powerless to do anything. And so Micah instructs them what they should do. Wither in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. Because you must now leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. Micah pictures the city under siege from the Babylonians being, and the whole city, the whole people being taken into exile. This is the covenant curses of Deuteronomy that Moses spoke to the people before they entered the promised land. They are going to be kicked out of the land because they have failed to obey God. They have failed to worship him exclusively with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is it. As the prophets in Micah's own day said, if we go back to chapter 3, is not the Lord amongst us? No disaster will overtake us. So on this day they have been proved totally false. For God is about to send his people into exile. And of course the remarkable thing about this is that in Micah's own day, when Micah was writing this, when Micah would have been preaching this stuff, the superpower who was about to come and, well, who liked to to take peoples away from other places, who liked to come and take over lands. The superpower on on the horizon was Assyria. It wasn't Babylon. Babylon might have been a major city at this point, but it was no superpower. So Micah sees something which has not yet happened, yet he reports it as if it's just about to. Micah knows that that it will be Babylon, not Assyria, That Judah will fall to and be carried off as slaves to serve in a foreign land. And then the most startling line appears in this section of the passage. For although there is going to be this horror of captivity to come, we find a reason. We find a purpose. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hands of your enemies. And this, of course, is the language of of redemption, which would have been very familiar to that small remnant. It's the basic idea of the exodus from Egypt. It was the Lord who redeemed his people out of Egypt. It was God who acted to rescue them from the Egyptians. Now again, Micah reassures them that God is going to act once more to redeem them, this time out of exile in Babylon, a new exodus. That God is going to bring and restore his people. There will be pain. There will be sorrow. There will be suffering. But through this temporary judgment and trial. God will rescue his people. There is still hope. Then in verse 11. We come to this 
second section, which again begins in the Hebrew with this word, now. Again, you begin to see this pattern emerging, for we have a statement of impending devastation, followed by a declaration of God's intervention to rescue his people. Now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled, that our eyes gloat over Zion. Mike is back in, his under, in a city under siege. Many nations would have been in service to, to the Babylonians and their armies. And they have come against the city. They have come with an, an explicit purpose. They want to defile Zion. To carry off the temple treasures. To set up their idols in the holy place. I think there's a hint here of, of that it's not just a desire of conquest against Judah. They have, for, for the reason they've come, but it's, they've come against God himself. They're there to destroy his temple, to destroy his own people. Their desire is to gloat over the place where God had set his dwelling. To capture it, to destroy it, to scatter his people. Zion is surrounded. Whoever these nations have come with this purpose of destroying Zion, what they haven't realized is that there is another purpose at work. There is a higher purpose involved in this process. They have come thinking that their military strength, that their might will overthrow Zion. But God has another plan for these nations. There is a vital piece of information, a vital piece of intelligence that they have not, they do not have. They're not privy to the counsel of the Lord. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the the threshing floor. These enemy nations have come thinking that it was their own desire, their own plan that brought them against Zion. But actually it's been God's plan. It's been his purpose all along. It is God who has brought them to Zion, not so that they can conquer it, but rather so that they themselves will be conquered and subdued. They came as mighty nations, but only so that they could be sheaves of grain on Zion's threshing floor. Historically, the the threshing floor would have been an area of flat, hard uh, land outside the city walls, where they'd have put down the sheaves of grain as they'd, as they'd cut them up from uh, their growth, and they would have an, an animal would have basically pulled a sledge or, uh, over the top of them, and this would have broken up uh, the, the grain, and the grain would have dropped out basically, and they'd be able to collect it all up. So God has turned the tables upside down here. All their attempts to destroy God's people will come to nothing, for they are not really up against a weak and besieged Zion. They are up against the Lord of all the earth. Uh, Joseph Conrad, in in his book, uh, Heart of Darkness, has this brilliant illustration of of the folly of this. Um, I've been looking to use this illustration for like two years, and now I've finally got the chance. And the main character in in Conrad's book is, is he's sailing for Africa on a steamer. 
and they steam past this big giant battleship just just, uh, uh, anchored off the coast of Africa. And in this big battleship as its guns pointed towards the continent and it's firing its shells. And the main character in the novel makes makes the comment of how how it looked so stupid, how the, the folly of it. How this great symbol of human power, of human might, of the might of empire. As if this great thing of man's invention could destroy a continent with its shells. All the might of the great ship as it fired its great guns into a continent that it will never destroy. It's a bit like that with the nations. They have turned their guns on something that they cannot destroy, that cannot be destroyed. And these evil nations come to thresh Zion, but God's plan for Zion doesn't allow for that. Rather, these nations themselves will be threshed by Zion. Verse 13. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break into pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, the wealth, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. God here commands an embattled, a weak Zion, his people, to rise up and to thresh. That is to defeat the very nations that have come against them. And what's more, God gives this weak, embattled people the tools to do it. He gives them horns of iron. He gives them hooves of bronze so that they will indeed thresh as they trample them over. These evil nations as they gather against God and against his people. Zion will break to pieces many nations. They will be defeated. They will be subject to God. The key phrase here comes at the end. The spoils will be devoted not to selfish empire building or to greedy kings. They will be devoted to the glory of the Lord. They will be given over to the God who is over all nations and who judges all peoples. And now is where things get slightly complicated. For what exactly is Micah envisaging here? Because if you know your history, you will know that Zion was carried away. Jerusalem was carried away. It was carried away and defeated by the Babylonians. But here Micah predicts a great victory. So was he wrong? Well, I don't think so. For I think the clue here, and the way this all fits together is with what Micah says in chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5. For although Micah is partly referring to things which will take place in the near future, this is still a passage which finds its fulfillment in the end times. It's, to use a a theological category, eschatological. It points towards the end times. We've met the nations before in chapter 4. Micah saw them coming In the first uh, six verses, he saw them coming, seeking Yahweh, coming to the mountain of the Lord. But here, Micah sees them now gathered against God and against Zion, seeking to destroy them. Micah sees God's victory over all these forces as as they are stacked against him and against the church. These forces surround God's people, seek to overwhelm them. But God intervenes. He brings salvation. He brings a victory for his people. 
And surely, of course, this is, this is true in every age for the church. As the forces of darkness and evil gather together against God, against his people, they seek to destroy him. Yet, God has a higher purpose. A greater plan than their purpose. God's people are strengthened and equipped to overcome what looks like impossible odds. What looks like certain defeat. The church looks like she's under siege, ready to give in. Yet God brings strength, victory. I agree with uh, John L. Mackay in his commentary about this. This has Psalm 2 written all over it. God's people, uh, sorry, the nations and the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2. They seek to break free of him. Yet God, the one in heaven, laughs at them and terrifies them by doing what? He sets his king in Zion's holy hill. Psalm 2. And of course, that is God's anointed one, God's Messiah, Jesus. The anointed ruler who would break to pieces the nations. This is just the language of Psalm 2. And it's confirmed when we go to the, the, the third section, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, uh, where we meet this new leader that comes from Bethlehem. A leader entirely different than the current leaders in Micah's day. Chapter 5 again begins, the NIV ignores it, but it's there in the original Hebrew, with now. And again the pattern continues. The city is under siege, hemmed in on all sides. And things are so bad that Israel's ruler is totally humiliated. They strike him on the cheek with a rod, but like slapping someone across the face. It's humiliation. Total defeat. Even the leader within the walls of Jerusalem will be humiliated by his captors. But once more, we have hope. Once more, there's intervention by God. This time it comes from Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah uh, is, uh, is an older name for Bethlehem, same place. And from this tiny village, from this tiny place, will come a ruler will come a new leader for Israel. And notice here, it's Israel, not just Judah. And this ruler is a very mysterious person because his origins are from, his, from of old, from ancient times. Of course, it's referring to the Messiah. You know your New Testament, you will know that this is quoted in the birth narratives in the Gospels. This section of Micah is probably the, the most famous one. The person will, who, who will come... And yet he, he doesn't have a beginning. He's from ancient times. Or if you look at your footnote, you'll see he's from days of eternity. This is no ordinary person. It's someone who is from eternity. And if you look uh, at verse, uh, verse 4, this ruler will act completely differently from the current crop of leadership. For he will, verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name uh, of the Lord his God. As Israel and Judah's kings and leaders had been self-serving, had relied on military and economic might, this leader, this one, this man from Bethlehem, he will lead in the strength of the Lord. 
and in the name of Yahweh his God. He will not act act out of uh, self-interest, but will serve and do the will of God. And the result of his leadership, verse 4 again, that his people, the people of God, will live securely. And this leader's greatness will reach to the very ends of the earth, and he will bring peace. But, verse 3, it will come after a time of exile. Israel will be abandoned until the time she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers uh, returns to join the Israelites. Uh, I take this to be, the woman referred to here is the church. The church gives birth to the Messiah. John's great picture of that, uh, Revelation chapter 12. From the church comes the Messiah. And the return here of his brothers I take to be the Gentiles who who come into the church. So that we will have a Jew-Gentile filled church. Before the Messiah comes, there is a time of abandonment, a time of exile. The church will be in a foreign land, the church will be under attack. But through the Messiah, God will bring his people back. Through Jesus, he will restore them and grant them victory over his enemies and he will bring about that new age. So when you put all this together, when you bring it all into one, you get this great picture of God's actions in the world to bring about his salvation for his weak and feeble church. A new exodus Remember uh, in the gospel accounts uh, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus. And he's there on the mountain and he's talking with Elijah and he's talking with Moses. And what is he talking about? He's talking about his exodus that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. God will bring his exiled church back into fellowship with him into a new Jerusalem. They will dwell securely in a new land, if you like, put it that way, a new world. And it's through that exodus on the cross that Jesus, even when he looked like he was totally defeated, triumphed over his enemies and put them to open shame. And now he strengthens and he equips his church to go out and meet the foe, to stand against the evil. And through the Messiah from Bethlehem, God has acted to take a weak, humiliated church, broken by sin, corrupted by sin. But yet through Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, he has brought that new church to life. And he rules over them as their king, defeating their enemies, preparing a place for them in a new world that he will create. All accomplished because the church was worth it. Because the church was full of good people. Because his church earned it. Of course not. All accomplished out of God's own mercy and grace. All achieved through his Messiah, his anointed one, through Jesus. 
He wasn't born in the splendor of Jerusalem like a king. He wasn't born with royal robes or grandeur and majesty, but was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, a town which wasn't even mentioned during the conquest under Joshua. Through the man of Nazareth who came to seek and to save the lost, God has acted to redeem his church, to bring her back from death to life. To bring her back from defeat to victory. And to let her dwell securely and peacefully through her Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you're here tonight, and if you're tempted to think that the church is too weak to survive. That there's, the opposition is just too strong. That there's no possible way to overcome it. Then please think again. If you think that the church will never survive in our society. Think again. For God has a higher purpose for his church and his people. And yes it may mean that we have to pass through a painful exile for a while. Suffer persecution in all its various forms, whatever way it it appears. The church might indeed suffer. It might look like it's going to die out. It might look really bad. It might look desperate. It might look like it will never survive the onslaught of a militant secularism or the rise of an evil empire or whatever it might be. But God's purpose is to build his church. He has redeemed it through the blood of his own son. He has defeated his enemies and triumphed over them on the cross. Sin and death no longer have any say over his people. Christ has redeemed them. He has rescued them. And through Jesus the Messiah, he has acted to give a weak and sometimes feeble people, feeble church, hope for a wondrous, bright future. A future which we already experience in part here and now. But will experience completely when that Messiah, when Christ returns again. And if you're part of the church of Christ, then he is your redemption. He is your hope as well. No matter what happens in life, whether we come through a period of hostility or a period of great revival, God's purpose is always the same. He will build his church. And he has promised that the gates of hell will never prevail against her. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that great promise that you have and you are building your church and the gates of hell will never prevail against her. Lord, as we look around, we often feel that the church is incredibly weak, is incredibly powerless in the face of much opposition of many things happening even in our own country. Lord, we thank you for that wondrous promise that no matter how bad we think we are, how weak we think we are, you are our strength. Christ is our hope. And through him, Lord, we know that you have already conquered and that you will do again. Thank you, Lord, for this wondrous truth. Help us to trust in you and to believe it and to rest assured in it. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.